0: Well, good morning. It's just a pleasure to to see you all here. Um, Let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for such a a beautiful full morning. Uh, Thank you that your love uh, is renewed every day towards us. Uh, You are faithful and true to your promises. And you've committed yourself to us so deeply in giving your son and then pouring your spirit into our hearts and giving us your word. Father, teach us this morning, we pray. We ask you to come and dwell among us and open uh, our hearts and minds to your word uh, and uh, give us the will to put it into practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, really is good to see you and uh, it was lovely to meet quite a number of you yesterday in the various discussion groups. Um, That was just a joy to get to see a couple of dozen of you face to face and uh, learn a little bit about you. Yesterday morning I talked about really our glory as human persons, the way God has made us in his image and the way he calls us both to love him and to love others and uh, i challenged us in our present setting culturally where all around us we hear hate speech including uh, from within the church that this is not what the new testament calls us to that true spirituality requires us uh, to love our neighbor whoever they are uh, whatever they believe however they live you know this Uh, is the Gospel of Christ. And we finished with Jesus' challenge uh, to us to to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, and to pray for them, and to do good to them. That is the calling of the believer. Now today what I want to talk about in this second uh, of our sessions is human sin and alienation and how we are to respond to that as people uh, who are sinners ourselves. You know, because we're not just talking about the people around us in the culture who don't love God, who don't believe in Jesus, who don't obey God's commandments but are always finding new ways of disobeying them. Uh, And it happens very rapidly. I remember just in 2011 That's not very long ago, you were all alive then, even though you're all very young. Uh, President Obama is saying that marriage of course was between a man and a woman, everybody understood that. Uh, And here we are just 11 years later and nobody on the kind of left half of the culture or the more liberal half of the culture would say that today. And even many people on the right and many people in the church Uh, have moved from the position which he held as the most liberal senator in his voting record before his election as president. He said that just 11 years ago and it's hard to believe. It's like that was the stone age in terms of where our culture is now and the pressure on the church to conform to what our culture is saying about same-sex attraction and transgender issues and many, many other things. So, what about sin? It isn't somebody else's problem. You know, it's our problem. Where are we going to begin when we think about sin? Well, we first need to understand the the depth and breadth of sin, of rebellion against God and disobedience towards him. I mentioned in one of our discussion groups yesterday that Francis Schaeffer uh, really had a broader view, uh, a deeper view of this subject than any pastor uh, I met probably uh, in my life. And I'm now just about to be 77. But he had such a deep and broad understanding of human disobedience and its consequences in our world. In his book, Genesis in Space and Time, he speaks there about the fourfold curse. That is the the curse which alienates us from God, from ourselves, from one another, and from uh, creation. And this is very helpful in taking the impact of our disobedience to God and everybody else's disobedience to God really seriously. You know, we cannot understand the world in which we live unless we have a sufficiently deep understanding of sin. I had the privilege of having John Sanderson as a theology professor when I was a student at Covenant Seminary back in the 60s. And he, d- he was, always used to say at the beginning of his classes, if you don't get sin right, you won't get anything else right. Now, I would want to go back a bit further and say, if you don't get creation right, you're not going to get anything else right. You know, believers don't start with sin. We start with the good creation and the goodness of what it is to be human as God's image bearers. But then we have to go on and talk seriously about the condition we're in because of our rebellion against God and our disobedience to Him. Now that very helpful kind of little view of Schaefer, the fourfold curse, I've extended into what I've called the seven-pointed curse. And I'm not going to talk about that in depth this morning, but just to run through it very quickly for you to help us see how wide the impact uh, of human disobedience is. The first point of that curse is God's alienation from us. Nobody likes to think about that, including Christian believers. But that's actually where the Bible begins, with God's just anger at human rebellion against him and human disobedience. So God's just anger. Yesterday, we used, I read from 1 John 4, where John uses the word propitiation to talk about Christ's death for us. And that is the heart of his work on the cross, is propitiating the just wrath of our Heavenly Father. So we begin with God's alienation from us, his righteous anger at our disobedience and failure to worship him. Secondly, uh, our alienation from God, this is true of every human person. I was sharing with uh, Max scholars, last night I was asked by your president to give a brief account of my own conversion. And it was a year after I had become convinced that Christianity was the truth. Before that, I'd wanted to kill myself. I had been seriously suicidal and had actually gone out to do that, to throw myself over a cliff. But when I found there were actually answers to the very basic questions I had about human existence, and in particular about the problem of evil in the world and the terrible suffering there is. You know, I found these wonderful answers that God's word gives us that were shared with me by my friend Mike, the Canadian who eventually led me to Christ. But it was a year after I was convinced Christianity was true and I was glad to be alive that I finally bowed before God and came to believing faith in Jesus. Nobody wants to find God ultimately, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 3, nobody seeks God really truly, God is seeking us. Uh, And eventually uh, he found me and managed to to subdue my proud and arrogant will and reluctance to bear before him, and he does that not by saving us like sticks and stones as Luther mistakenly said, but by loving us into submission uh, to him, wooing us. So that's the second element of it, our alienation from God, our rebellious desire to control our own lives. You know, that is the deepest held belief in this nation. You can look at any opinion poll, say 98 percent of Americans say they want to be in control of their own lives. Uh, That includes almost all the Christians. Uh, And we ought to know this is just nonsense. When we come to faith in Christ, we acknowledge that God is in charge of us and has the right to tell us what to do. But that is, to our cultural moment, that's a heresy. That is the greatest heresy. And it's very challenging for us as Christians. It's challenging for me at almost 77. I can assure you it'll be challenging for all of you every single day of your lives. Because this this is the deepest poison of the culture in which we live. This desire to make my own choices about my body, my sexuality, my gender, whatever it happens to be my possessions, what I want to do with my life. But you have all said, Lord, here I am. I belong to you. I delight to do your will. Your law is within my heart. That's what the psalm says. And of course, Jesus applies it to himself, but it's applied by God's word to everyone who comes to Jesus to acknowledge him as Redeemer, Savior, and Lord. So secondly, our alienation from God. We have this rebellious desire to control our own lives, which you have to resist. And pray that the Lord will help you resist it. Every day I hear about another Christian who has left their wife or left their husband and gone off with somebody uh, of the same sex or done some other disastrous thing because that's the pressure of the culture is to do whatever we want to do. Thirdly, we're alienated from ourselves. Uh, Every one of us in this room experiences from time to time shame. Uh, We ought to. We have all a great deal to be ashamed uh, about. There isn't one of us who can look inside ourselves and see that we are perfectly whole, beautifully virtuous, that we are delightfully acceptable to ourselves, even though our culture is teaching us to love ourselves without limit. You know, actually, we all find things that we find difficult to love about ourselves. And we really should. Because, in fact, we are broken internally. And we all experience the sadness of that. Fourthly, we're alienated from others. We all have a self-centered desire to love ourselves more deeply than anybody else. Uh, And once you're married, once you have children, you fight that self-centered desire every day of your life to give yourself to your spouse and to give yourself to your children but long before you're married you ought to be fighting that desire. The best preparation for marriage for you young people is to love other people right now better than yourselves. You know that's the calling of uh, every believer. Paul puts it very simply in Philippians 2 that we are to seek the mind of Christ which is to think more highly of others than of ourselves. That's the Christians calling, but there is alienation from other people at every level uh, of society, right up to the international level of course. Think of the appalling things that are happening in Ukraine every day. But this is human sin and its impact on our relationships with others. Number five, there is also an alienation between body and spirit. God made us to be one, eternally. Sin has come to tear that apart. Uh, Even in this life as we experience sickness and and all kinds of physical troubles and and unhelpful limitations. We experience this tearing apart of body and spirit so that even physically we're not able to do the things we want to do. And of course, at my age, that becomes more evident uh, every day. Um, But for some people, of course, and I'm sure some of you have struggled with it, you see this in people who struggle with anorexia and bulimia, where a person really is no longer in touch. Their body and their spirit are really not one. And it's a really terrible thing. And if you do struggle with that, you'll please get help. It's a really terrible, terrible thing. But all of us experience it, of course, in the most acute way in death itself, where body and spirit are torn apart. And that's why Paul says it's not until the resurrection, the redemption of our bodies, that we become fully the children of God. God made us to be one. So we experience this alienation between body and spirit even now even before death. There's also alienation from us to the creation in which we live. We abuse this beautiful earth on which God has set us. We fail to fulfill our calling to be careful and faithful stewards of the earth he's put in our charge. Uh, I love to grow things, it's one of my passions. But uh, I don't do it very well and uh, I'm always uh, doing it inadequately. And all around me I see all kinds of dreadful damage to our world. done. By people for purely selfish and thoughtless reasons. And finally of course there is a curse on creation itself. Paul says it's been subjected to vanity as part of God's judgment on us. So it's not possible for us to create utopia in this world and imagine that really we're able to make things right here. Uh, we We aren't. We cannot. It won't be until Christ comes that the creation is made new. So this is the depth and breadth of our sin. It affects every aspect of human existence. Every possible relationship with anyone and everything uh, around us. That is our condition. And in fact, it's... uh, In one sense, this little brief outline of sin and its impact is is one of the elements of the good news of the Christian message. That it helps us to understand the world in which we live in a way that nobody else can really understand it. If you think the world is the way it's supposed to be and that life is the way it's supposed to be uh, you're just lost. Utterly lost. That's where I was before I and uh, found the answers that God's Word gives us. It just makes life completely absurd to imagine that this is the way things should be. Now, as we think about that breadth of sin and its consequences and the depth of their impact on human life and on everything in uh, our world, it's uh, also a helpful framework to understand the work of Christ. So his salvation, his saving work, his redeeming work, his coming uh, in the incarnation to be born as a little baby in our world and to live a, a righteous and virtuous life without any disobedience at all, and then to bear our judgment on the cross and to be raised again and to give us the promise of his return to make all things new, as we understand, seek to understand what Jesus has done, it addresses all seven of those alienations and ultimately will overcome them all for us. That is what we're looking forward to, just the beauty of this biblical message which is so broad and so deep that Christ is coming to make all things new as the book of Revelation puts it. To renew everything, not to make something utterly different, but to renew everything and to make it the way it ought to be. So only when we see that Christ's work is so broad do we understand the greatness, the wonder, the beauty of what he has done for us, is doing for us, and what he will do. And only then do we also understand the breadth and depth of our calling to be truly spiritual. Because to be truly spiritual, our faith and our daily obedience has to impact every one of these aspects of the curse and the impact of disobedience and rebellion in our lives. Now, that's where we should begin as we think about sin, with this broad view. But let me come to a more personal question, where should I begin? Where should you begin? You know, as uh, an individual believer. Now, many Christians today will tell you, we need to just put on our armor and get out and fight for God in the world. Um, Well, actually, that's not where we are to begin. Um, Jesus tells us we have to begin with our own sins. That's where we have to begin. Let me read Jesus' words to you from Matthew 7, where he challenges us to begin with ourselves. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce... You will be judged. and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's an alarming word. You, you think of all the criticisms you make of other people every day, you know whether it's your roommate or uh, whoever it happens to be, your professor, um, you know, your family, your friends, uh, people you don't like people in the world around us. Well, Jesus tells you, you know, the measure with which you measure other people, you will be measured yourself. And then he makes it more alarming still. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? That's a wonderfully amusing image. Jesus very clearly had a sense of humor. You just think, about walking around with a great log sticking out of your eye, uh, trying to observe a speck of dust in somebody else's eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is this log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, uh, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But actually we never get to that place where our vision is really clear enough to judge other people and to take the specks of dust out of their eyes. So what's my calling as a Christian believer? The Apostle Paul says, and it's fascinating to observe his letters from his earliest letters like Galatians and Romans and then on through letters like Ephesians where he talks about his own sin as he does in Romans and then his pastoral letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, but it's there in these letters he wrote at the very end of his life that Paul comes to the conclusion, I am the chief of sinners. One of the worst sermons I ever heard Here I'm trying to take the speck out of somebody else's eye, but I I won't say who it was. But uh, one of the most problematic sermons I've ever heard, let's put it that way, uh, said this. Uh, The preacher said, he was preaching on that passage in Timothy, and he said, scholars and commentators um, really disagree. They don't really understand what Paul means by this he's obviously not saying literally that he is the chief of sinners. He said, for myself, I know many people more sinful than me. You know, I wanted to actually crawl right under, the, under my chair uh, when he said it. Um, because, you know, he's ma- a man that I love. But that's not right. You, know, you and I are called to regard us, to regard ourselves, myself, as the the chief of the sinners that I know. And of people that I see, whether on the television, or here on the radio, or in a movie, or out in the culture, or the people around me, difficult people in my family, uh, whoever it is. And, And the reason for it is this, The more you love God, the better you you get to know Him, the more deeply you understand His laws, which are this wonderful uh, recipe for a virtuous human life, the more. Uh, I listen to Jesus and hunger for righteousness, the more I see the beauty uh, of holiness and it it truly is beautiful to see a person who is living a life uh, of self-sacrificing love every day of their lives. It is beautiful and the opposite is so ugly. It was so moving at the Queen's funeral and Queen Elizabeth II was a deeply committed believer in Jesus Christ. If you watched any of the funeral and burial services, the one in the memorial service in St. Paul's Cathedral, the funeral service in Westminster Abbey, and then the burial service at St. George's Chapel, She chose every hymn herself and every reading, and they were all focused on the person of Christ and all the music. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he was talking about her life, said she had devoted herself to a life of loving service. And he turned to the 500 presidents and kings and queens and Prime Ministers from all over the world, with the exception of a couple of people who weren't invited. um, He turned to them and said, for people in the world, a life lived of self-sacrificing love is very rare. But among people in power, you hardly ever see it. And then he said these very powerful words. He said, those who cling to power and enjoy their power will be very soon forgotten. You know, those who live a life of self-sacrificing love it you know, will be remembered with love as the Queen was, and will be. So the more I hunger for righteousness and see the beauty of holiness, the, the, imp- the effect of that, of those things, knowing God better, loving God better, seeing Him more clearly, seeing the beauty of His character, longing to emulate that in my own life, falling in love with His commandments, desiring to live them out in my relationship with my wife, my sons, my daughters-in-law, my grandchildren, my students, my colleagues, my neighbors, the people around me, everybody I meet in every setting, in the grocery store or wherever it happens to be, or when I'm driving along the road, or or listening to the news, that the more I fall in love with those things, the more I see my own shortcomings. When I first became a believer, at the age of 21. I knew there were some things that had to change immediately. But I had no idea of the depth of sin in my own heart. Today I have a far better idea. I haven't actually become more wicked, thank God. That would be very dishonoring to the Lord to say he has changed me profoundly over the years. But I'm far more aware that I am the chief of sinners today than I have ever been at any point in my life. So it's, it is a necessary consequence of falling in love with God more and more deeply, longing to love Him and serve Him and to love others well. So I am to be, to recognize I'm the chief of sinners and I'm to be the chief repenter that I know. That's my calling every day to be the chief repenter in my acquaintance. Now what this means of course that for me as a believer there's no room to regard other people as deplorables Uh, whoever they are and whatever they're doing. Uh, There's no room for me to condemn other people because I see my own sin so clearly, there's no room to hate other people, no matter how much they may hate the Lord or me. You know, I have no room for such things in my life if I understand that thinking about sin has to begin with myself. Now, I have to come to an end very quickly here because I'm running out of time but let me just address one issue uh, our new president of the seminary and the previous president uh, we're constantly getting letters and telephone calls and emails uh, from people uh, saying why do you have jerem bars on your faculty you know he's just weak on sin and he's weak on speaking boldly about the issues of our moment in society uh, and uh, they always stand up for me which is very nice and uh, because while I have all kinds of failings uh, which I'm acutely aware of that actually isn't one of them. Now I love the law of God my most recently published book is called Delighting in the Law of the Lord Uh, and I love to teach on the commandments of God and I'm constantly addressing Uh, the moral issues of our time. I taught a whole class on unholy matrimony, uh, what's happening to marriage in our culture. But no matter how clearly I address those issues, and on abortion, for example, I must have given a 100 public lectures in my life. I think it's an abomination. And on uh, all of these other issues I've debated gay professors on homosexual marriage, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. I don't want to defend myself here. But the important point is this: that God, when I address the moral issues of our time, of our culture, God requires me to speak with grace, gentleness, and respect. That is a command, an explicit command repeatedly of the New Testament. You know, God requires me and you to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, who loved people actually because of their sin. That's why Jesus came into the world. He didn't come into the world to die for people in spite of our sins. He didn't come holding his nose like, how can I cope with these dreadful people? Jesus came because we are sinners. And he loved us because we are sinners. And we are to love other people because they are sinners, not in spite of it or deploring them. You know, the, the test is simply this. Will the person who's practicing the sin that I'm speaking of, abortion, same-sex relationships, uh, pornography, theft, greed, self-centeredness, whatever it happens to be, pride, uh, adultery, fornication, whatever it is, Will the person who's actually giving into, practicing or being tempted to practice the sin I'm talking about, hear me, and want to come and talk to me afterwards, or will they think that I hate them, despise them, that I regard them as a deplorable? We did a the Schaefer Institute in our counseling department put on a conference on abuse. Abuse in marriage and in the family. And of course many people who were abused uh, came to speak to us afterwards. But also, quite a number of people who were abusers came to speak to us. It doesn't matter what issue you're addressing, you, have, you are called to be a representative of Jesus with whom sinners love to be and they need to love to be with you. Now, Jesus never compromised for one second his stand on the right what was righteous but sinners welcomed him gladly and they need to welcome you and me gladly. And delight to be in our company simply because we love them. Amen. I'll stop there. I'm a little over time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your graciousness towards us that you knew before you called us to yourself just how wicked we are. The depth and breadth of our sin And you've been so gracious to slowly expose to us the things we have to deal with rather than just downloading on us all our problems. Thank you for your patience, kindness, and grace and help us to live with others in the same way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.